So this is uh, the third class, the third uh, book study in our uh, Diamond Sutra book study. And we are on chapter seven. Right? Okay. So, <coughs> once again, the Buddha asked the Venerable Subhuti, what do you think, Subhuti? Did the Tathagata realize any such Dharma as unexcelled perfect enlightenment? Anutta Samyak Sambhodhi. And does the Tathagata teach any such dog? The Venerable Subhuti thereupon answered, Bhagavad, as I understand the meaning of what the Buddha says, the Tathagata did not realize any such dharma as unexcelled perfect enlightenment, nor does the Tathagata teach such a dharma. And why? Because this dharma realized and taught by the Tathagata is incomprehensible and inexpressible. And neither a dharma nor no dharma. And why? Because sages arise from what is uncreated. Sages arise from that which is uncreated. So, Indeed, Porter says, in the previous chapter, and I'm in the commentary, previous chapter, the Buddha told Subhuti to let go of dharmas once they had served their purpose. Right? So, like when you cross the river, you get on a raft, you cross the, raft, the river, and then you don't need it. But to let go of no dharmas even sooner, the Buddha knows that Subhuti has not yet grasped this teaching, that he is still attached to the no dharma of no dharmas, the no of the no dharmas, emptiness. Hence, he raises the subject of dharmas again this time focusing on the Dharma among the Dharmas, unexcelled, perfect enlightenment, Anuttara Samyak Sambhodhi, the realization of which is experienced by a Buddha's reward body, the Sambhogakaya. Ananda pre prefaces this chapter with Punal Apana once again, as if to indicate that the Buddha was once more trying to break through the limitations of Subhuti's understanding. This time he focuses on Subhuti's understanding of the nature of enlightenment. Up until now, the Buddha is focused on the qualifications on embarking on the Bodhisattva path. He now proceeds to the goal of Buddhism and the Buddha's three-in-one body. And uh, Charming titles this as No Realization, and no teaching. No realization and no teaching. So for a few minutes, and we have to go through that fairly quickly, but for a few minutes, let's open it up and from your reading, from your listening to this, what can it mean? What does it mean? What do you think? No teaching, no dharma. Then what are we doing? Are we not studying? What's the point of study if there is nothing to study? That would be the question. Just because there's nothing to study doesn't mean we shouldn't be studying. To keep us off the streets. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's maybe one way. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. I guess maybe at that point there's, I guess, 
talking and studying implies that at a certain point you stop because you've mastered something or, or you pass the test and you move on or you think you've apprehended whatever it was that you were studying and now you've moved on to something else. I guess the idea being is that there is no moving on to something else. There's you pass the test, turn it off, put it away. Morning, right no, more, no more teachers, no more books uh, type thing. Uh, that it's just continuous. Right. So, so the question is, how does, when we read this, when we uh, study that, what is being said in this chapter, how does it change the way we study? What kind of impact does it have on the way we study? Well, maybe not so much what we study, but the way we study. I hesitate to use the, the phrase, but it's less goal-oriented, I guess, of the studying is a means to an end as opposed to the end in and of itself. So it takes away a later version yeah. of you or a later time that will come and then you will see what you cannot see now, which may be the truth, mm -hmm. maybe the truth, right? But it takes away that. So it brings the attention fully to this, mm -hmm. solely to this. Right. So you don't start to learn. Say again? You don't study to learn. Maybe we study to unlearn. Yeah, you're not studying to learn because learn, learn is always about some future. Kind of the world is, is about some future, so you're basically not studying to learn. You're just doing that. You don't study to accumulate mm -hmm. because there's nothing to accumulate. It's interesting because you, you still learn, but yes. you're not doing it for it. So is this opening up your mind? Well, it seems to me to be a study in awareness, if anything. Awareness is used for the study of awareness. Mm -hmm. And what do you achieve? Is it just like growth, Richard? No. Just like generally? Or that is that's a question. That's a question to look at. What do you achieve? Who is achieving is more important than what you achieve. Look at who wants to achieve something in this. And I'm not trying to, I'm not telling you to answer it now, but this is the way to look at it. Who wants to achieve? Right? Who wants to achieve something that is not achieved yet? Yeah. Who, who is expressing lack? Who is coming to this from a place of lack or poverty mind? Now, it doesn't mean that we don't learn. And this is the point, right? You know, and Reza was saying, it doesn't mean we don't study. It doesn't mean, I mean, we have a lot to study for the rest of our lives, in a way, and a lot to work on for the rest of our lives, of course. But again, the, the question, this is shedding light on how, not so much what. It also makes me think of, um, you know, some of the things that we say at the end of Sashin of, you know, I should be better than this. You know, you're surprised by, I thought I had this down. I thought I achieved it. I thought I did my study and practice and mastered the thing. Why am I doing X, Y, Z mistakes or, or things that I would consider beginner or amateur? It's just moments that turn you back to the practice, to, to focusing on that. And if it turns you back to the practice, it works. Yeah. Yeah. Winnegg says, the realization of no realization is called true realization. The realization of no realization is called true realization. The teaching of no teaching is called true teaching. 
So something is taken out of it, right? What we apply as extra is taken out of it, and then what's left is just this. What, what's left is just teaching, just study. Right? And there is, a, there is a merger there, actually, in this way of looking at it, or understanding this. Thus follows a chapter on no realization and no teaching. That's his way of explaining what is brought up in this chapter. It is also called Real Going Beyond. Sneak preview to, uh, to uh, the Shusa Hosen, which will air on June 30th. <laughs> here. And it means you have to be here for that. Uh, it's called Real Going Beyond. Asanga says, what appears is not a Buddha, nor is any Dharma talk. His teaching of non-duality cannot be expressed or conveyed in words. And Vasubandhu comments, this explains that Shakyamuni is the incarnated body of a Buddha, which never actually realizes enlightenment or teaches dharmas or liberates beings. By his teaching of non-duality, is meant, is meant he does not not teach. And what is said or what is heard is neither grasped as a Dharma nor as no Dharma. Neither grasped as a Dharma nor as also nor as not Dharma. Now, th this is very important because it is not telling us, and you know, we've heard that before many times, it's not telling us let go of this and now hold on to that. Because this is far greater than this. So let go of, of your precious commodity that you thought is precious up to now. No, this is not precious. This, hold on to this, this is much more precious. And that's how, that's how Subhuti sees it, right? So uh, emptiness is by far greater than form. So by letting go of form, I can di direct or divert my attention to practicing emptiness. And he's telling him, you're trapped by that. You're holding on to that, to no doubt. Chifu Chifo says, before we understand, we depend on instruction. This is actually a very important paragraph. Before we understand, we depend on instruction. After we understand, instruction is irrelevant. Right? You know that about other things. The Dharmas taught by the Tathagata sometimes teach, it, teach existence and sometimes teach non-existence. They're all medicines suited for the illness. There is no single teaching, but in understanding such flexible teaching, if we should become attached to existence or to non-existence, we will be strike, stricken by the illness of Dharma attachment. Teachings are only teachings. None of them is real. The Buddha tells us that there is no teaching and that we, sh that we should break through the barrier of words. So it's very easy to be attached to the finger pointing at the moon, in other words, right? And become infatuated with the finger pointing at the moon. So words are there to convey something. If we look at the words and we become enamored by the words, we miss the point. Anybody wants to say something about that or should we move on? Or? You look like you want to say something. <coughs> it is, it's all very um, interesting. Um, 
it, just all of our phenomenal life is instrumental. Would be one way. It's a language. Uh, any way that we deal, it, it's all instrumental. Would that be a way of so that none of it? It's all um, moving beyond itself and not staying within <coughs> itself. Yes, it can be. It can be seen this way, but yet. How do we do that without rejecting the words? Right. Without rejecting language, because this is what, you know, in a way, what, what is so shedding light on Subhuti's Right, so to use it. Right. I mean, if it's an instrument, you use, you use the tools that you have yeah. available, right? So. And the question is, is the finger pointing at the moon separated fr separate from the moon? It's pointing at. Mm. Right? Because if I see the finger as, well, this just means to an end, then I can be very uh, disregarding about that or not caring about it. Um, yeah, I guess it's what Tyler is saying about acknowledging the means not as means to the end, but a means that is absolutely necessary in and of itself. Um, I mean, you can't go, there isn't any. <coughs> How to say it? There's nothing experiential beyond the means. Yeah. Yeah. So we want to, yes, we want to embrace that and appreciate, but not get stuck on it, right. not grasp it and hold on to it and make something out of it. Yes. Because the phenomenal world, right, is neither true nor false. Because if we see the phenomenal world as true, we, we're, we fall into the delusion that it's real. If we look at the phenomenal world as false, um, we can't use it, right? We can't use it for ourselves and for our learning and for our enlightenment and the enlightenment of others. So I, I, to, I think this is about non-attachment to a thing or no thing, or you know, the truth of something or the falsehood of something. So. Um, you know, back, back to the notion of, of study for the sake of study rather than study for something. I think it's the attachment and the, and the constructs that our mind overlays on things that I, I think that this, the teaching of no teaching, is trying to bring out. Yeah, it, it's, it's basically asking you to, because if you go into non-existence, right, then you reject existence. If you go into existence, you reject non-existence. So, if you go to one side, there is always the other side. What do you do about that? Right? If you go only to realization, then what about delusion? <clears throat> if you hold on delusion, well, there is the other side of that. And it is saying, dwelling nowhere, or dwell nowhere. Right? I think we need to read. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, you raise your hand. <laughs> no, it's just, um, the other day, my, I have a friend, and she, she's, holding on to the healing herself face, like, oh, I need to, you know, go to a seminar and do this to heal myself, to heal myself, to heal. And I'm like, the other day, I, I sounded a little rude, but, but no, I was just straightforward with love. But I said, I think it's enough of healing yourself. Just go out there and share, and then you're going to still heal yourself, but you're not longer healing yourself. But it's still going to happen. And then she goes like, oh, I think it's enough, like, and I feel like that, like, enough, it gets to a point that it's enough of reading or dharma, it's enough in that sense of letting it go, 
well, the Dharma will not end, or the teachings will not end. We all be, it's like we teachers, like, yeah, yeah you're a teacher. That's, that's when a real student starts happening, you know, like once you, you just go to school, finish, now it's real life, but that doesn't mean you finish yeah. like learning, you know, it's just not really. No, it's asking us about the relationship we have with the Dharma, yeah. right, with what we teach. What is our relationship with that? And actually, uh, to Lee says, <coughs> if, if we say he realizes or teaches something, that's the Buddha, right? We fall into the view of idealism. If we say he does not realize or teach anything, we, we, dis, we disappear into the view of nihilism. Right? Either way, we get trapped. We get trapped, yeah. Either way, we get trapped, right? So, and I also want to bring a, a short uh, paragraph from the introduction to case 58 from the Shoyoroku. It says, understanding the meaning based on the scriptures is the enemy of the Buddhas of all time. Understanding the meaning based on the scriptures. Now it says, the second part of this sentence says, deviating one word from the scriptures is the same as devil talk. Do you see? It's like emerging. What does it mean to understand the meaning based on the scriptures? Is the enemy of Buddhas of all time. Why? Worshipping what's on the page as opposed to... What do we reject? Our own experience of life. Experience, yeah. This body. Which is interesting, especially the part about nihilism, because I feel like every time I talk to friends or whoever, that I, a, I started doing this Zen thing or whatever, uh, nine times out of ten, how they understand Zen is this retreat from the world. Yeah. This kind of like, you know, I don't have feelings about anything, mm -hmm. or I'm pulling, you know, I don't want to experience uh, daily existence, or yeah. it's a, like, again, a retreat. And here it is, it, it, you know, it, not much <laughs> verbiage of, it's, it's the exact opposite. This is one of the reasons why the word retreat, I think, is not the right way. This is why Sishin works much better. Yeah. We don't have a word for it in English, so Sishin works. Yeah. But if we use the word retreat, we, we go into it mm -hmm. with a misunderstanding, right? Yeah. We're not really doing that. It, if anything, it's the other way around. Yeah. We're diving deeper into life rather than retreating from it. Yeah. We're not retreating from anything. We retreat in our everyday life, actually, right? By going into displacement activities. Mm -hmm. So Sashin allows us to do something different about it. Cool. And Zazen, right? Zazen, right? On a daily basis, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because, yeah, it seems as if we are separating, checking out. Yeah. But we check out all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Right, we do that all the time. So yes, so to, and the, again, this is asking us about our relationship with the dharma, right? So even if we don't like it, even if we don't practice, you know, this is not for me. This is, you know, you guys are too cultish for me, whatever, right? That's already creating something of the dharma. Mm -hmm. And if we say I love the dharma, it's great. I am, you know, all for the dharma. Yeah. We become very, we can become very self-righteous about it. That's again a trap. Mm -hmm. Either way, it's a trap. Isn't the Dharma, it's like everything you open up your eyes, whatever is around you, the smaller it is, there's no more and there's no less. And it doesn't matter what you think, 
this is. So the whole thing is just to do with opening up your mind all the time and not closing it because the moment you're closing you you run away. So then when you are another way, when you merge, you are who is saying that? Who is opening up to the Dharma? When there is merging, as you described, who is saying we need to open up to the Dharma? We say our mind is saying that you know, be together, be comprehensive of everything. Because when merging happens, the questions go away, and and, and the sentence, all of it goes away naturally when there is merging. But, no but the functioning, the daily functioning, of course, is fine as is. Deluded or enlightened is fine as is. So the, he says the Buddha is pressing Subhuti and us to look deeper and deeper into, the, into his understanding of the practice, the nature of realization, and Buddha. How do we see? And this is probably the most important question. Not Subhuti. How do we see Buddha? How, how do we see the Dharma, the practice? How do we see realization? Do we see it as a future goal that we are striving to arrive at or attain? Right? And if we, think, if we think that there is such thing as realization, then we are rejecting something. If we think that there is no such thing as realization, we are rejecting something. And our tendency is to, okay, if, I, if I'm letting go of this, give me something else to hold on. Fine, I'm willing to let go, but prove to me that it's worth it to hold on to that now, not to this. But isn't that nothing to let go? Therefore, nothing to hold on. Right. We don't have this <laughs> Yet, it's a journey. A yeah, long journey. Yeah, yeah, the Buddha said that too. It's a long, long, long journey of understanding that there is nothing to let go of. Yeah. So, uh, Bill Baldur says, a number of commentaries uh, add that the Buddha could not realize anything because he did not forget anything. It's very nice to say, right? You can realize because you cannot. It's like I have to find myself. Well, why do you think you can lose yourself? We know that it's it's predicated all on the fact, on the notion, the notion that we can lose something. So then I have to find it. But when when the notion of losing goes away, the notion of finding goes away too. That's the same thing as it reminds me of what you said about healing. You're not necessarily healing. Your body is doing what it needs to do. So you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And so, and, and he could not teach any, any, anyone anything because we already know everything that we need to know. So how do, you, how do we learn that which we are... Uh, it's already innate. How do we learn that? Right? So it changes the question to how do we bring it out to... To fresh, how do we actually use it, live it? But that's the question. But it's not so much to find it. That's not the question. That's what we when we come to practice. We're told we're already there. He says we too have not forgotten anything. Hence, we cannot realize anything. And this is the same as knowing it by birth is best. Knowing it by learning is next. Right. Knowing it by birth is best. Then where is accumulation 
or how is accumulation needed, right? Or achievement. What can I achieve? Of course, you know, in everyday life we do speak like that. And we do, you know, you, you achieve, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, financially, financial goals or education or material, material stuff, right? So we call it achieving something. But what's it really? You know, I mean, it's, it's fading. Right? To achieve something is to also realize there's nothing to be achieved. Therefore, you achieve. Right? So. The Buddha's question in this sutra are similar to what later became known as koans in the Zen tradition. This is also important to us. Uh, they are not posed to develop our understanding so much as to free us from our understanding. Right? So koans are, are studied, are brought into our practice as a way to shatter, to break through what we hold on to. This is a good point to bring up the importance of studying koans. <laughs> very important. I think that uh, you know, uh, some of us try very hard to avoid studying koans. But I would absolutely urge you to change your attitude. You have to look forward, <laughs> although we don't, right? <laughs> to look forward. You have to be curious, basically. Now, what is it that I'm not seeing? You know, what is it? And, and it actually, what it does, they mess with our standard way of looking at things. So then we begin to, we dive into not knowing how to deal with it, and then something else begins to emerge. And what emerges as a way to deal with koan is what he's talking about. That which we already know. It's not new language. It's just, uh, it's not foreign language. It's our native tongue, which we forgot that we cannot forget. Well, that's why it's interesting that he says um, to remove the understanding, to remove your understanding so you can understand. Yes. Right? To remove what you accumulated and what you think you need. Right. But then the, the, the issue with that is that it's terrifying because we rely on what we know or also we rely on the way we learn. We rely on the way we're we, we used to learning. Yeah. So what he's, he's saying here is just let go of that because that becomes a crutch, a problem, a trap. And coins actually work very well with that. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. They break the habit, the habitual patterns of reacting. They show, they show us. They show us how uh, attached, tethered we are to our way of thinking, our way of being. How conditional we are, too. Yeah. Right? So they shed light. So we move on. Uh, Winang says, unexcelled perfect enlightenment is not found somewhere outside. It only exists when the mind contains neither subject nor object. When the mind contains subject, there is a gap. When it contains object, there is a gap. When it contains anything, there is what it does not contain, and then there is already a gap, or, or dualistic view. It's actually, um, if anything, this is it's an incredible opening to function in a completely different way, in a very free way. Hold on to nothing. 
at the same time reject nothing. Nothing. And you know, and, and it's also asking us to look at how much we hold on to. And it doesn't take long because you look at what is upsetting you, you know exactly what you're holding on to. Right? You're upset by something, watch for the nose pain. Remember from the con from the sashimi? Watch for the did you listen? You should listen. <laughs> watch for the nose pain. Watch to see what are you connected, tethered to. What is controlling you? The nose pain from an ox being led by nose pain. So if we're upset by something, there's a good clue to the direction in which we need to look. Yeah, but so a lot of times you, you are upset about something and, you know, it's like a fork and all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's the way it's supposed to go. You can, yeah. And you, you just can. go, it's like, yeah, it makes sense. By the way, about koans, a lot of times I look at them and I look at them and it's like, what the hell is going on? Yes, yeah. I'm like, clueless, why? And I, I sometimes I keep rereading, all of a sudden it's like, yeah, that's yeah. how it is. Very yeah. simple. Yeah. Uh, but yet there is that beginning, right, or, or big chunk of time that we observe it and it just normally makes no sense. We want to throw it away. Right? It's like, the hell with this, I don't need this. <laughs> Right? You try to rewrite it a little bit. You know, right, it's right, like yeah. try to fit it into the way that. Yeah, that's probably what it meant. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's the language barrier there, right? Yeah. I can rewrite it much better. Yeah. <laughs> we apply logic. That's basically what happens to all this. Right, right. We apply logic. And logic is great, actually. It's a great tool, but very limited. As long as we understand that logic is limited, logic is great. Well, there's logic from, you know, putting it on and then there's like what we're talking about here which is inherent logic and, and that these things in reality and what we're awakening up to have a logic have a sense but then there's the difference of yeah. putting it on top of something rather than trying to look it's, you know. right so forcing it on something and then maybe uh, cloaking something yeah. with it, right and then we no longer see what's going on mm -hmm. we see what we want to see uh, Subhuti says, this Dharma realized and taught by the Tathagata is incomprehensible and inexpressible, neither Dharma nor no Dharma, and why? Because sages arise from what is uncreated, and, and before the comments by saying, this is Subhuti's answer, not the Buddha's. Subhuti is among the wisest of the Buddha's disciples, but his wisdom falls short here. Thus, it should be kept in mind that this sutra represents the education of Subhuti in the perfection of wisdom. He does not yet understand this teaching, nor does he understand the nature of enlightenment. But if, as Shaliputra says later, Buddhas arise neither from what is created nor from what is uncreated, from what then do they arise? The Buddha answers this question at the end of the next chapter. So Chifo says, although Nirvana Tathagata and the diamond Krajna Paramita are different names. They are all uncreated dharmas. Created dharmas are the dharmas of the world. Uncreated dharmas are the dharmas that transcend the world, the world of appearance. Often people who cultivate think that uncreated dharmas refer to emptiness or stillness. And, the, and then and they 
turn their minds and bodies into ashes and dead wood and think they are practicing Buddhism. But all they're doing is trying to catch the wind or kick a shadow. They're lost in deluded and deluded people. You see? Kind of. <laughs> okay, well, we can move on to the next chapter. But the point here is, is, and the point that comes up over and over and over again, is dwell nowhere. Dwell nowhere. And dwelling nowhere raises the Buddha. The Buddha. The most, the most difficult challenge for us is to dwell nowhere. I think even to understand what dwelling nowhere means, right? How do we understand dwelling nowhere? Freedom. Yeah. It is freedom. Are we willing to pay the price? What is the price? Attachments, habits. Letting go. Yeah. Letting go of this one, of the one sitting. Letting go of that. Mm -hmm. Letting go of thinking I know what that is. Or I will know what that is later on. Is that like knowing that I will never know? It's called the great death in Zen. It's dying to the notion of separateness, dying to the notion of self. Yeah. So I'd like to use um, an example, a martial arts example. So when you first start studying martial arts, it's all about learning how to orient your hands and how to do all the different moves. And you really need to focus on it because one, you can hurt yourself, and two, you won't be able to do the, the, the move correctly, or the technique correctly. But after a while, you, you, the word is embodied, it's such a loaded word, but the move becomes just part of you, and you don't necessarily ever need to think about it anymore because you just know how to do it, right? You learned it, and then you forgot that you learned it, so you just have it. And that gives you an enormous amount of freedom because it enables you to use that in any way, in any situation, under any circumstances, without even thinking about it. And to build off of it. Yeah, so, you know, and that's a very simple example, but, um, you know, to be able to do that with your life, I think, is what we're all trying to, um, that is what we're practicing. You know, the ability to, to, to learn something and then forget it and then just be able to call on it and use it appropriately and authentically in our life. And at the same time, you know, with every step on, on that path, on the learning curve, so to speak, right? It's complete. Right. It's good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, it's good at the end. It's not more complete later because you have acquired something that you were able to forget. Do you see? So right. it's not rejecting, 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 accepting. Right, right. And that's accepting, 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 constantly. Exactly, continuously, exactly. So jazz. Well, because you can never, if you don't accept the fact that you're doing it improperly, you'll never, you know, you'll never accept, you'll just never learn. Well, right, learn. there is some truth in that, because if you don't accept the, the, the stage you're at right now, fully, embrace it fully, you are stuck in that forever, because yeah. you cannot move, in, move on to the next step. 
right? So to perfect something, there's gotta be full acceptance of being clumsy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because if I don't wanna be clumsy, I got a big problem. I can't learn anything. I can't learn. Yeah, okay. But the thing is, when I started learning yoga, yeah, that applies. I never done yoga before. So there was an openness in me to like, okay, I don't know, let's do it. But now you tell me formless when I was, I grew up and I mean, believing strongly that, what do you mean there's no form? There's no form, like I'm touching myself or I'm, I can feel people. There is a separation, she's there and I'm here. Like that is, I think like in my case, like I'm stuck with like, the book studies for me are like, my mind is perfectly wired. And then we come here and you guys <laughs> cut something. And I'm like, what's going on? You know, like, and my mind right now is like drunk yeah. because it just, it can't grasp anything, which is a beautiful thing. I remember one story that the master did, I don't know if it's a story, but the disciple asked the master, I help me to awaken. And he's like, you really want me to help you? And it's like, yeah, of course, what I'm here for. And then the master followed this guy forever, every second, saying, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. <laughs> so then the guy was going crazy. Like, he was going crazy. Literally, his, his mind was going crazy because until eventually, obviously, the mind, we, you break through. So that's how I feel with this for me. Like, it's just like, oh, man, just n duality. Yes, no, the form, no form. My mind is like, well, what's going on? But because of that, I feel like there is that resist. It's easy to accept, like, we do accept that we don't know certain things. Like if I ask anybody that never practiced yoga, like, I don't know, right. that's easy. But yeah. once you think you know, <laughs> it's kind of like a pre-thing to learn the movements. Because if I tell you right now, like, Aikido is completely different and change every movement that you already knew, there is something before that actual, yeah. like, you yeah. feel like a pretzel. Right. But that's like where And it's asking you to examine how tightly you hold on yeah. to that, right? So yeah, how, how tightly am I identified with it and holding on to it, right? But if you feel this way, if we feel this way, then it's doing what it needs to be doing. Right? It's doing exactly what it needs okay. to be doing. Right. Uh, just to kind of comment on what you're saying about separation. I think it's interesting if you look at it experientially, like what you experienced while you were at Sashi, your mind is thinking there's separate, there's nothing here, or there, there's something keeping us apart. But when you let go and just experience, you experience that there is that connectedness. And in that way, you can kind of let go of your thinking mind and like, okay, well, I experienced this, it doesn't reconcile with what I think. So what, what actually is? Or that, that's how it happens for you. Right, and it's not, right, and this is the point, it's not asking you to reject this. You know, you look at your hand, for example, yeah. it's not telling you it's not there, in a sense, in the way we see. It's just telling you, you don't end where you think you end. Mm -hmm. You think that you end here, this is the outline of the <coughs> hand, this is where I end and the world begins. And it's telling you no. It's been because you, you're not separated from, so there is, no, there is an outline to the eye, but the eye is deceiving. Because the eye is limited. And who's the only one who can limit that? I don't know, self. <laughs> I was going to say, I had a professor uh, put it in, in a way that I thought, always thought was helpful. It was uh, looking at identity as like oceans. 
where all the water kind of bleeds into each other and we have these maps and we go, okay, there's the Indian Ocean, there's the Pacific Ocean. If you were on a boat, you would never, there's no signpost to say you've now entered the Pacific Ocean or whatever. It's something that we've put up kind of arbitrarily to designate that space or whatever, but all throughout that, the water's still bleeding into each other. It's all connected, but yeah. it's just easier to understand it that way. No, okay. We have to move on to chat so quickly and then we move on. Go I ahead. was just going to mention about achievement because we all the time we want to achieve. You know, you go on a mountain, you reach the top, and then what? So I, I, for every time you know when, when you, you go on a mountain, it's the whole thing is just a journey on the mountain. It's not the top. We spend 10, 15 so minutes. So that's how we our life, life realization. Yeah, you know, it's not a question of getting over there. It's all the journey. And this is like has to do with our, uh, you know, slow walk around. I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. And, you know, we keep doing it. Yeah, and it becomes more and more. So this uh, is what prevents you from getting stuck. Oh, I'm, you know. Or you can ask, moment by moment, what am I holding on to? What am I identified with right now? So chapter 8, the Buddha said, Subhuti, what do you think? If some noble son or daughter filled the billion worlds of this universe with the seven jewels and gave them as a gift to the Tathagata, the Alhan, the fully enlightened ones, would the body of merit produced as a result by this noble son or daughter be great? And of course, this talking about merit, accumulated merit, right? And Subhuti answered, Great indeed, Bhagavan. The body of merit produced as a result by that noble son or daughter would be great, Sugata. And how so? Bhagavan, whatever is said by the Tathagata to be the body of merit is said by the Tathagata to be no body. Thus, does the Tathagata speak, speak of a body of merit as a body of merit? The Buddha said, Subhuti, if instead of filling the billion worlds of this universe with the seven jewels and giving them as a gift to the Tathagata, the Aham, the full enlightened ones, this noble son or daughter grasped but one full line gata of this Dharma teaching and made it known and, ex and explained it in detail to others, the body of merit produced as a result would be immeasurably, infinitely greater. And how so, Subhuti? From Subhuti, from this is born the unexcelled perfect enlightenment of Tathagatas, Ahan, fully enlightened ones. From this are born Buddhas and Bhagavats. And how so? Buddha Dharmas, Subhuti. Buddha Dharmas are spoken by the Tathagata as no Buddha Dharmas. Thus, they are called Buddha Dharmas. So, which four lines? <laughs> figure that out. <laughs> Only four lines from all this. Which ones? You know, I, I, I don't know if you feel this way, but uh, I have to say that I was actually telling Sugyoku this earlier. We were chanting today, right? So, you know, we chant pretty much the same chants every time, right? And uh, we chanted the Hot Sutra, and I was standing officiating, and it penetrated me as never before. Without getting into details, but I felt it really deep. The same words, right? We chanted the same words, and then something moved, something shifted. And I was like, yeah, this is it. That's what that means. 
And it's not the first time. I mean, it, you know, it does happen over and over again, but it penetrates deeper and deeper and deeper. One word, one word, or one strike of the Makugia is enough. But the, the words, what we chant, we chant what we need to penetrate, or what can help us penetrate. And if we open up to it in a way that, yeah, I've never chanted that before. I've never been here before, which is true. If we chant it this way, it actually goes through. It actually penetrates. But if we chant it, well, i got to go get through this again just so I can get to Zazen, which is after that, right? And then I can go do whatever I want to do next. You missed the point. Because there is no next. But the point here is really the, the teachings are incredibly profound and incredibly deep. And they work. It works. But we have to be willing to allow the teachings to penetrate. And that's always the issue, right? Am I willing to allow the teachings to penetrate? Am I willing to say, I don't know. And so for, from studying the, the, you know, this sutra again and again, you know, especially now, you know, preparing this, preparing for the, for the study and then looking deeply into it, it, it actually penetrates you. You know, and I don't know, maybe you, you don't feel this way. What do you feel <laughs> when you look at that? When you read it at home? You feel anything? <laughs> maybe I'm the only one, but go ahead. <laughs> it can't be centered in intellectualism. Like if I, when I recite it, there are times when I, I'll recite it at home, I'll read it at home, and it'll just be like this thinking thing, you know, I'll think about it, you know. But when it really penetrates your heart, then it kind of expands everything, and you can see the merge and what it means. I've had that experience before during officiating as well. There was one point, actually, where I felt like I was between two worlds, but they were one. It was really interesting. But it felt like a penetration of the meaning of it. Yeah, when you allow it to vibrate <coughs> through yeah. you. Yeah. So you're not chanting. You, you merge with the chant. You merge with the words. Mm -hmm. See, the chanting is powerful in the sense that you're actually not thinking if you're doing it right. You're actually just chanting. And you're kind of saying the words and listening to the words, thinking about them in a different way, because you're receiving the knowledge of what they say, but at the same time you're not thinking about it like you do when you read it only. So chanting has a, that power that is phenomenal. I, I felt it many times when, when, when I'm chanting, you know, like I'm connected to a chant. And of course it comes and goes, sometimes you're kind of not really there, but most of the time when you're there, it, it is phenomenal because it feels um, I don't know, it feels right the whole time. And, and, uh, and so it has like this phenomenal quality of it that you're not observing yourself. And so you're losing it. You're losing the self to the chanting. And yeah. the chanting is the you only thing that happens. You lose the one to the many. Yes, and the, the right. chanting and is the only thing that happens. Yeah, your voice becomes one voice. <coughs> Our voice, voices become one voice. Mm -hmm. And then within that, of course, you know, I can think about a lot of things. I can think about, I don't like this, I'm hungry, I'm tired, my shoulder hurts, you know, or we're going to do later, 
I can do a lot of, we, we multitask by thinking and doing. But if we merge. No, if you merge, that goes away. It goes away. It that's, gets what, that's what I was saying. Yeah. You're not thinking about it anymore, it goes away. If we do that, yes. Well, I think that's especially true also. It's very beneficial, I always encourage people to do this, but to learn the chance yeah. without the book. Because it really does allow you to participate you more, yourself more in the chance, absolutely. I do feel like, like most of the chains, I don't understand, and I like that because he, it helps me. It has helped me meet with the trust mm -hmm. because I don't understand. Like for example, when you do it in Japanese, I mean I can read the translation of the, right. but I don't understand. It's not my native language, and but it's that. Like I, I trust and I, I feel it feels right, but I don't understand why. Like my mind talking about that, mm -hmm. that always want to understand yeah. everything, you know, and the intellectual work. Mm -hmm. So I do feel like sometimes I feel like this is good, and I don't know why, and I'm happy that I don't know why, and I'm still allowing that to be. Yeah. But I, ha I don't have control over the chanting. Yeah, but like, you trust. Yes. Yes. And so it's being you trust, and that's essential, because if I don't trust, my judgments become very powerful. And then I believe that I am correct in, in the way I'm judging. This is not for me, for example, right? And people say that. <laughs> it's not for me. I just like sitting by chanting. I don't know about that. How do you know it's not for you? How can you be so sure? Right? So if we don't mess with that, then we, it will never penetrate us. We take a chance, right? Uh, in the commentary, Paul says, in the last chapter, Subhuti penetrated the emptiness of the Buddha's realization and teaching of enlightenment, and he traced uh, Buddha's back to the uncreated, which is the Hinayana view of uh, Buddha's Dharma body. The Buddha now brings the fully enlightened ones back from space, in a way, right? There's not one way to say that. Buddha does not deny that his own realization that his own realization and teaching of enlightenment have no self-nature and are not in themselves real. But without dharmas of some kind, our progress on the path to liberation becomes impossible. And that, that, is, that sheds light on the need to follow a path. There is no path we chant, yet we follow a path. We chant, there is no path to follow. We are kind of crazy like that, right? We chant, yet we do it. In fact, liberation loses its meaning. Hence, the Buddha refuses to let Subhuti cling to the raft of emptiness and turns his disciples' attention from the uncreated back to this teaching, which is the Buddha's true Dharma body and the source of his realization, the reward body, and teaching, and teaching, sorry, uh, appreciation body. Thus, while neither the realization nor the teaching of enlightenment is ultimately real, yet, by such means, are beings liberated. So those are means for liberation. And uh, Jiang Wei Nong says, the Buddha is concerned that we will misunderstand his previous teachings of practicing charity without being attached to appearances and think that there is no need for charity or the resulting merit. Hence, he tells us, that while we should practice without attachment, we should not neglect charity. For comparison, forms of foundation of, sorry, for compassion, 
forms our foundation of wisdom. Does I have a question about... For compassion forms our foundation of wisdom, yes. About merit. Yeah. Can you, can you explain to me what you take is on the worth and, and the concept of merit? Because they talk a lot about how this is merit, how this... Yeah, well, when you think about... Uh, look at karma, right? So karma explains that too. Because mm -hmm. if, if you do certain things, if you have done certain things, then it, it leads you to uh, a different place, right? Uh, negative, positive, without getting into that. But our actions are connected, right? So what we do will affect what happens later, right? So in a way, we are here. We found the Dharma appealing because we have done some good things in the past, right? So we have found but that, the Dharma. But, but karma and merit, you're, you're, you're intertwining them. But no, uh, in English, at least at my understanding of English, which is limited, Karma seems to be like a non-judgment way of causation. You know, like karma is like, you know, whatever happened that makes this, you know, in the past and it will go in the future, you know. And merit seems to be something that has, like, because I mean, they say, well, if you do this, this has merits, you know, like this has like some positive. You know, and, and, and that's the point. Okay. That's the point of karma because it creates, it, it changes things for later. So it's it's not the harmful karma we are trying to release. Yes, but it's creating the creating the good karma or, or a karma that is going in the right direction, and that's what we call merit. Yes. So then, what we call accumulated merit. But what he's saying is that forget that, right? Forget that, and then. Focus on your understanding of this, these four lines, as you said, right, quote-unquote, these four lines, right? If you do that, that is by far greater than any accumulated merit, right? By far, this is greater than any accumulated merit. I was watching no line was talking about Einstein and the general and basically it says anybody affects the, the time, space, continuum. So, I don't know, maybe our action do affect eventually our, our future existence or other existences. I don't know exactly. Just, but I feel that there is a connection there. Well, there is a connection because, because our actions, right, so if we are not aware of our actions, if we're not aware of, we're not practicing, then there are, there are different kinds of actions, right, different kinds of being. When you are aware of it, right, so you are taking responsibility, for example, for, past, for, for the way past karma is manifesting today, and you are doing something different today. So then, by doing something different, by practicing, actually just by practicing, it is said that we are accumulating merit for later on, right? And, and even with that, by the way, we, we don't accumulate to hold on, we accumulate merit to share. So whatever merit we Accumulate, we give it to the world as done. So, the, the issue of merit, right? What does it mean? The merit of the law? Um, and the, as I was saying before, to, 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 the, uh, culturally, we may not understand and connect to that, but uh, I remember when we were traveling in Thailand some years ago, and there was uh, some street forms there. They have uh, people that have, that have cages with birds. And it is said that if you release a bird from a cage, 
you actually uh, you can get merits, right? But it's very interesting because those are very tra they are trained birds. They can they keep coming back. So you go and you pay for the guy to give you the cage. The bird goes away, right? Then you go away, and when you go away, the birds come back. <laughs> so they can make more money out of this. Uh, so what is the merit? <laughs>
So, and as you know, some of you know the traditional Dalai Lama meeting uh, coming from India to China, meeting Emperor Wu. And uh, Emperor Wu was known to, uh, he emptied out his treasury to uh, help uh, build monasteries and ordain nuns and you know, priests uh, in, in Buddhist tradition. And uh, so he met Dalai Lama, who was known as well, this great teacher came from India, and said, here's what I've done so far. What merits have I given me? And he said, none whatsoever. Nothing. He said, you have accumulated nothing. And this was somebody who, you know, like a peasant, right, going to visit the emperor. And the emperor could have just had him killed, just like that. Because no, you got nothing out of it. Zero. And that, again, comes back to this. So what are we left with when it is true that what we do does affect us now later, but when it comes, you deal with it then. It doesn't matter. No, I'm just reading what Yen is like what Yen Ping said on page 149. This is like someone whose lamp lights a million other lamps. Their merit exceeds all those whose lamps they light. Whereas making offerings attached to form is like shooting an arrow into the sky. When its force is spent, it falls back to earth. Yeah. Yes, one action. One line. How can the Dharma know what was in the heart of the Chinese emperor? Maybe he built all those monastery, uh, you know, monasteries or whatever. So then he, and for him to say that there's no merit in what he did, his hand is his hand is shown by even asking the question. Uh, yeah, his question was. His question was what, what have I, what merits have I gained from doing that? And he said nothing. And actually, after that, then, then the emperor asked him, well, then who is standing in front of me? And Bodhi Dhamma said, I don't know. He said, I don't know. And then he was uh, deeply enlightened. He was, uh, I think, 100 years old. Deeply enlightened, and he said, I don't know.
that's why they don't, I feel like they don't care. Uh, they do care about accumulating, but not necessarily for them. Like this guy asked, what marriage do I have? You know, it's just like, who is asking for that marriage? Or who, who wants to get it? Who's the one that want to get that marriage? So in the accum- if there is such thing as accumulating, the question is, who's holding it, right? So if I accumulate something, then I may be creating that which is holding on to what I accumulate. And for what? That's my question. What do I accumulate marriage for? So he's known as a good guy. Is it just that we there's nothing to accumulate, there's no marriage, it's just basically this is your journey of the life, you decided basically to build a temple, so whatever, it's okay, but now I'm here. So you just keep moving. This is your life, this is your journey. Because you know, and we have to watch for that. Yes, it can be used as that, but that's not really what Sibundi did not mean it right. in that way. Right. right? So his question or the understanding back then was not that, you know, I'm gonna hold on to the marriage. It was not like that. It was, you know, lifetime after lifetime you can your marriage and then you do you become a non-returner basically, right? So you do transcend that uh, you know, life and death, life and death, the cycle of life and death, and you eventually get to becoming a non-returner, which is the next chapter, right? So we have to, we have to read that. Yeah. Uh, next chapter, would you like to read that? So I'll take a break from you. Next chapter? Chapter nine. Okay. Yes. It's a long chapter. said to find the river. Bhagavan, if those who found the river should think, I have attained the goal of finding the river, they will be attached to a self, they will be attached to a being, a life, and a soul. The Buddha said, tell me, Subhuti, do those who return once more think, I have attained the goal of returning once more? Subhuti replied, no, indeed, Bhagavan. Those who return once more do not think, I have attained the goal of returning once more. And why not, Bhagavan, they do not find any such dharma as returning once more. Thus are they said to return once more. The Buddha said, tell me, Subhuti, do those who return no more think, I have attained the goal of returning no more. Subhuti replied, no indeed, Bhagavan, those who return no more do not think, I have attained the goal of returning no more. And why not, Bhagavan, they do not find any such dharma as returning no more. Thus are they said to return no more. The Buddha said, Tell me, Subhuti, do those who are afraid from rebirth think, I have attained freedom from rebirth? Subhuti replied, No, indeed, Bhagavan, those who are free from rebirth do not think, I have attained freedom from rebirth. And why not? Bhagavan, there is no such dharma as freedom from rebirth. Thus are they said to be free from rebirth. 
If, by the one, those who are free from rebirth should think, I have attained freedom from rebirth, they would be attached to a self. They would be attached to a being, a life, and a soul. And how so? Bhagavan, the Tathagata, the Arkham, the fully enlightened one, has declared that I am foremost among those who dwell free of passion. Bhagavan, although I am free from rebirth and without desires, I do not think I am free from rebirth and without desires. Bhagavan, if I thought I had, I had attained freedom from rebirth, the Tathagata would not have singled me out by saying, foremost among those who dwell free of passion is the noble son of Subhuti, for he dwells nowhere at all. Thus he is called one who dwells free of passion, who dwells free of passion. So that last part of the is Bhagavan himself and about the Buddha's recognition of himself as the one who is foremost in the practice and in the understanding. Right? And he said, if I was not at that point, why would you give me that title? Why would you put me in that place? Right? So now when they're talking about that, I talked a little bit about this in the, in the Sashim, in one of the talks about the Sotapanna, the river finder, right? And the river finder is the, is the first stage in, in, uh, on the path of uh, enlightenment, right? Or spiritual path, where one has realized the, the river of change, right? So everything is changed, nothing, is, nothing stays the same, right? So to realize the river, to find the river, is to uh, understand that impermanence is not the question. It's not a matter of do I agree or disagree. It's just the way it is. So in a way, we are sitting around here and can be considered as river finders to some extent, right? Because we recognize that change is inevitable. So, and before it says, well, Sabuti reconsiders the nature of enlightenment and origin of sages. The Buddha asked him about the four stages of practice through which Subhuti and his fellow Shravakas have passed on their way to the sagehood. As their names make clear, all four reflect a concern with ending the cycle of birth and death. Right? And this was the, to, to become the non return is to end the cycle of birth and death. So lifetime after lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, and the end result will be to not come back anymore. And, and the whole point of, of, of the practice of what the Buddha is trying to explain is, no, this is not about that. We do become back to save everybody else. It's not about ending anything. Right? As the Divakita Sutra, right, if you remember, I am sick because everybody else is sick. If everybody else will not be sick, I too will not be sick. So you see the connection, right? And then he says, but if this would be sages, sorry, stages succeeded in not being reborn, sorry, this would be sages succeeded in not being reborn, how then could they arise from the uncreated? Such a goal is sterile. There is no comparison in Sukhuti's, there's no compassion in Sukhuti's path. Despite his emphasis on detachment, it is self-centered, not being centered, right? So despite what he so-called achieved, is still self-centered, using emptiness as the goal of being self-centered, or feeding off the goal of emptiness. The Shravakas, the Bosheers, quest for no reason. 
earth is not the same as the Bodhisattva's realization of your birth. Do, do we understand that? Yeah, no. Okay, you understand? I don't know. I think I understand. Um, I think the, the, the interesting portion of what they were trying to do, the Arhats, and, and they were like trying to achieve something. Again, go back to the achievement of, I'm trying to achieve this in the birth. I'm trying to kind of be so thoroughly penetrated by enlightenment and then I'm in Nirvana and then I'm not here and I'm not kind of born here. And, and the teaching is about like the, you, you were never born. There was no you separated from everything else at any given time. So since you're never born, you will not rebirth or birth again. And that is the understanding when you are not born. And you're not reborn because you were never born. And that is you know, kind of the understanding of the deep understanding that this doesn't achieve. You already have that. And Nirvana is actually not a place that's different from this. And the implication of it is most important. And you know, the last line where it says, Shravaka's damn the river, Bodhisattva swallowed it at its source. So, so Bodhisattva's turned to what? what they tried to get away from. Well, because they recognize that Nirvana and pollution are the same thing. They recognize that we are already here, so that this is it. And there is no other place to go. This shore is the other shore. Yeah. 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 Despite this interest in the Bodhisattva path, so we can steer a shrine, right? The one who hears from a distance. Or above, within the sound mess of everyday life. This word originally referred to those disciples who actually heard the Buddha's teach, Buddha's teaching. Uh, these early disciples and their later followers saw themselves progressing through a series of four stages to a final goal of Ohachi, which they considered more or less equivalent to Buddha. But from the Mahayana point of view, Travakas are still far from the goal. For they are still held back by the selfishness of their detachment from the self. Right, clear? You can be full of yourself by thinking that there is no self. Although Sabuti has attained the final fruit of such practice, he clearly has not yet attained the goal of Buddha. Still, Subhuti is not about to slight his fellow Shravakas, right? He's, in, in a way, at this point of the Sutra, he's kind of neither here nor there. He's totally to understand something, right? That there is something that he's, he's holding on to. But all his bodies are still, you know, he doesn't want to go against them or go against his own understanding yet. Which is a very interesting thing, right? Because, it, again, it's not Subhuti, it's us. It's, am I willing to let go, or maybe I'm partially holding up. I let go a little bit, but I'm partially holding up. I'm listening, but, you know, I'm still going to hold on to it. Tell me more, before I can let go completely. And the last line says, for unless detachment is based on compassion, it may lead to nirvana, but it does not lead to Buddha. It may lead to nirvana, but it is not going to lead to 
right? So you didn't know what to do with him all and take a chance. Why? Why did he not just live the rest of his life, his life in peace, somewhere eating fruit and whatever? But why did he not do that? Yeah. Because he was not to invite himself there, that he needs everybody, right? Every time that you marry, that you get married, you are feeling your soul. Because you are not taking your brain, you are taking your soul. So you, when you come back, you, you don't know anything. But if your soul is so strong, you can help others, and you can defeat the body, because the human body is very vicious, right? So you can help others and you can take everybody to Nirvana, but that's not easy. So we have to come, all the times that we have to come back and help everybody. Everybody is the perfect <laughs> uh, here realizing something, what does it mean everybody is that different than you or you that everybody different than you or what? Why would I like suffering that interconnected and so that is what really helped. 
they're suffering because they don't realize it. They're happy because they're not, they're, they're, they're fighting each other um, for no reason or what they think they're reasons, but they're not real reasons. And so you know, compassion and wisdom are not good. There's no compassion without wisdom, there's no wisdom without compassion. It's not one and then the other. The one is the other. And that's it, right? So and also, uh, you know, the heard from the cook, you look from the man to, to uh, China, right? And you know, the cook, you saw the cook, you know, walking in the field, you know, the guy, right? The gentleman. And he asked him, why are you doing this? And you should let some of the young ones do that. You're older, you should study the subject, right? And then I said, you know, you're, you're, you're full, you know, you're going to step on the dog, I said, ah. And then he said, if not me, who? If not now, me?
because we realize that we are one. If we realize that we are one, why would we not want to help others? We are others. So helping others is helping the one who's helping. Anything else is not fully real, fully realized. Chapter 10, we move on and uh, we have a great voice that we have not heard in mind. I read all week, guys. <laughs> I don't know if that helps you understand. Okay, chapter 10. Chapter 10. Okay, you want to send me the interesting The Buddha said, Subhuti, what do you think? Did the Tathagata obtain any such dharma in the presence of Vitanta Tathagata? We are not the fully enlightened one. So Buddha replied, No, indeed, Mahatma. The Tathagata did not obtain any such dharma in the presence of the Pankara Tathagata, the Arahant, the fully enlightened one. The Buddha said, So Buddha, if any Bodhisattva should thus claim, I shall bring about the transformation of the world, such a claim would be untrue. And how so? The transformation of the world, Saluti, the transformation of the world is said by the Tathagata to be no transformation. Thus, it is called the transformation of the world. Therefore, Saluti, fearless Bodhisattva should thus give birth to a thought that is not attached and not give birth to a thought attached to anything. They should not give birth to a thought attached to a sight, nor should they give birth to a thought attached to a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a garment. So, Bhuti, imagine a person with an immense, perfect body whose self-existence is like that of Mount What do you think, Subhuti? Would such self-existence be great? Subhuti replied, great indeed, Bhagavan. Such self-existence would be great, Sudha. And why? Because self-existence, Bhagavan, self-existence is said by the Tathagata to be of no existence. Thus, it is called self-existence. Because Bhagavan it is neither existence nor no existence. Thus it is called is it called self-existence. So before this is in the previous chapter, the Buddha examined the stages through which Shravaka practitioners pass on their way to Alhanship. The Alhan, however, is not the goal of the Mahayana practice, as we just said. Although Alhans are free from passion, they are also free from compassion. another way to understand that wisdom and compassion are not real. Right. They're free from passion. They have realized a way to not be attached to that, to the, the bodies or to the six senses, but they're not yet fully because there is no compassion there. So Buddha has realized freedom from rebirth, but he's still caught in the emptiness of the uncreated. Hence, the Buddha proceeds to examine his own career as a bodhisattva and the nature of the resulting merit in order to free Subhuti and his fellow Alphans from their freedom. And Dipankara uh, is actually one of the last Buddhas, one of the last Buddhas who appeared in the world about a hundred thousand eons before Shakyamuni. Do you know what Eon is? Okay, so they say that uh, 
actually feeling what it means to be completely selfless. It's actually to get terrified. It's to actually really um, realize and embody what that is. It takes a long time to be able to sustain that, to create enough spiritual empowerment and trust in that and actually Let's just talk, let's just take this guy, okay? Because you know, maybe we don't know much about the was or what will be, right? And in a way, this is cutting what was, what is, what will be. It's cutting all that away completely, right? But when we look at our own practice, right? So if you practice for a while, the ability to tolerate grows with time and practice. The ability to tolerate the fact that everything is falling apart. That what you call yourself is not real. It's really one second, the second after that is no moment. What is it? It's changing from moment to moment, from second to second. The ability to bear that truth and to bear that suffering that comes out of not bearing that truth, actually. Even if you bear that truth, even if you do realize it and can tolerate it, but what about everybody else? But what about the fact that everybody else is you? So their suffering, their pain, is your pain. How do we bear that? And in a way, what he's talking about is, is, is uh, forbearance. It's, it's bearing weakness, which is one of the most important in the job description. For the Sattva, right? This is one of the more important ones, right? Bearing weakness. To what? To the suffering of the world. So it, it is traumatic because we're not taught to think that way. We're taught to hold on, to accumulate, to fight, to resist, to argue. But it needs to be changed because the artists, in a way, they're still not sharing that. That's the main issue. The main issue is that they're still themselves achieving this space or this nirvana, this. You know, and, and they're not sharing the kind of the ultimate thing, which is this is not true to you. Uh, but about that, just, just to clarify, this is not in any way putting down Allah at, at all. I think it's, you know, maybe sometimes we see it that way, we can see it that way, but at not at all. It's not putting down anything. It's just saying, keep going. That's all. Yeah. Right? It, it, this is, Allah's our. It's an incredible path because, of course, it's necessary, but it's not the drop the ball, basically. Or drop the cell. Or what's to be? You drop the ball, you drop the cell. You find the cell in the ball. Right? Uh, Where else are you going to find it? You find it in, in the one, the one who's waiting for the ball to, to arrive. So you drop the ball, you drop the cell. You drop wanting to be anywhere else or become anywhere else. You want to do that? Terrifying. It is. It is. I think a long time ago you told me you like me, love me and you hate me at the same time. Because of that. <laughs> you remember know that? It was really profound. There was one of the retreats, one of the sushis we went, that was in. Uh, the Holy Grail, the Holy Grail, the 
Yeah, no, I used to do that. I used to do it because it was a really, really cool place. And uh, it was a really clear moment where, like, you tried to kill me. It was and yes, that's my shot. Okay. Fine. And so, you know, it's like, really, yeah, it was, I realized that it was like that was what we were doing. And, uh, and of course, I mean, like, the portion that was attached to, to, to that was like, uh, no, but actually what you did talk, you talked a lot with Adam, you know? I mean, that was very weird because... But, because the impact of what, what is terrifying to me about the connecting to Adam, what's terrifying for me about letting this go, this perception of individual, is that how, how the functionality works. You know, it's very, very subtle. How then you interact with everything else, which is still attached to the self. You know, how, how do you have, finally, how do you have, you know, how, how do you interact with the people you love and the people, because I mean, that is not real either. And, and then it's like this super realization that everything is just kind of not real. And it is real, but it's not. And, and that is, it was very hard for me because I, mean, I have like family, my kids, my family, but, and that always meant a lot to me, and it still means, but it means in a different way. And, and, and that, you know, that I think it takes a lot of time to, to do the forbearance of that, I mean, to kind of be okay with it, because I mean, like, you cannot go. And you kind of go with being okay with, okay, yeah, I mean, this, this is not really <coughs> different than, you know, what, we're not really separate, we're the same thing, but at the same time, we're not really you and me, I don't laugh. I mean, what, what is, I mean, it really finds the conceptual levels, I mean, it's like, what do you like? You know, what is the difference between these and that person? Wow, why they love this way and it doesn't. So it needs to really find everything that happens, you know, and, and because love, love for us is actually possessive, right? Exactly, it's, not, it, it's not, and it's that's not uh, uh, free. It, it is not, I mean, like it's a, the very the kind of the basic of it, the one that we actually learn it has to do with that. Yeah. So, so then we need to, we need to really find it. So basically, it, it's like you're going you, you toss it into the dictionary. And then you're going to a new one where a lot of words don't mean anything anymore. But the Akiyama is not the ghetto, right? So the ghetto is different than the Akiyama. Yes, that is true. Right? But it's very, uh, right, it's like I want you, I need you. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I think, you know, it's been, uh, yeah, that, that was kind of a point for it to one yeah. point. And then, you know, but it takes a lot of time to still sort of find the right. And, that, and this is why I wanted to, to you know, in a way, put aside, you know, lifetime after lifetime, whatever, compass, but just our own lifetime, our own practice, our own experience with practice. We know that if we practice and we practice and we practice, it does something. Even if it closes again, it opens up, it closes, it opens up. But we do experience something. And the ability to tolerate challenges, adversities, growth. Thank you. 
know, I mean, I, I, I think the conception, the conceptualization was before. Yes, I was, I was, we are all conceiving what it means to love, what it means to be so that, and then, which is a new way of doing it. And, and it's like less, less dogmatic or less kind of, it has less substance, maybe it's just a, so, so the issue is I didn't even realize I was doing and when I sit here, the organization is that, it's like, I didn't know I was making up all these concepts. And I was making up an attachment to them. So let me, uh, we're going to finish this, because we have to end this soon, uh, a couple minutes. Um, so it says in the Vipakir Sutra, <coughs> the Buddha says, who, he, who will purify the world first purifies their mind. As their mind becomes pure, the world becomes pure. And Tsurumi uh, says, how do we purify the mind? Externally, we remain uncontaminated by the six sensations, by six senses. Internally, we remain free of self and being, as well as unattached to nirvana. This is called purification. I think it's very clear. At least uh, what we need to do is very clear. Internal and external, right? And uh, in the Platform Sutra, it says, once, and human is talking about just once, when the fifth patriarch was reading the Diamond Sutra, when he got to, they should give birth to a mind that isn't attached to anything, the sixth patriarch, Rinne, was suddenly enlightened and said, how could I have known my own nature was already pure? How could I have known my own nature was neither created nor destroyed? How could I have known my own nature was already pure? How could I have known my own nature does not change? The fifth patriarch said, not to recognize your own mind is to study the Dharma to no avail. If, as I was speaking, you recognize your own mind and saw your own nature, you are a leader of men and gods. Right? So he's, he's saying, you know, the way to study is to study the one here. Right? So it's not externalizing the study. Because what we're studying has always been this way. It's not created or uncreated by the study. Right? So it's not dissolving or creating. It's in a way, in a way, the study is to affirm, only to affirm what has always been this way. And it does that. I feel it a lot. Actually, often I feel it. I study, I read, I look at the cons, I, I look at commentaries, and I recognize something there. But what I recognize is not in the words of the book. The recognition is by experience. And therefore it's not part. It's intimate. Right? And that's the way to study. So, 